You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. And, you know, we all know that it's important that people have access to loans, loans of all kinds. And I think of my own life. I borrowed money to go to school. I borrowed money to purchase a home. I borrowed money to furnish some of my homes. There were times when I needed loans to take care of different emergencies that have came that came up. And I don't think I'm too different than most people in the country. Americans rely on banks primarily to lend money in a variety of ways that could be through a credit card or a personal loan. If you're fortunate enough, uh, there are asset based loans like we use for cars. There are other kinds of loans that we use to repair homes and buy different kinds of products and services. But we also know that traditional banks, conventional banks, don't uh, necessarily provide these loans, these financial resources to everyone, at least everyone equally. There are certain requirements that people have to maintain or meet in order to be eligible to receive loans from these various financial institutions. And that can be a problem because people who aren't eligible or people who don't meet the requirements also have the same challenges that people who do meet the requirements have. They need those loans. And when they can't get those loans, sometimes they're forced to do things that are more desperate from a financial um, standpoint. You know, they sometimes go to what we know are know to be as payday lenders. And these people charge them extraordinary rates of interest. I've heard interest rates into the 20s and sometimes almost 30%. They'll go to certain credit card, subpar credit card companies that charge exorbitant interest rates. And once they borrow that money, it's almost impossible to pay it back without further damaging their financial situation. And it's already precarious. Otherwise, they wouldn't have needed to borrow the money in the first place. So into the thought process of how to address this are certain types of institutions. And we're going to talk about one type of institution today. We had a a few weeks back, we had a gentleman who is organizing a community development financial institution to support charities 
because charities need to borrow money too. We had Mark Rand on from American Nonprofits, and I recommend that podcast to you. But today we're going to talk with a gentleman who has established a similar organization to support people who are from poor backgrounds, who live in areas of the country. Frankly, many of them are unbanked or they would never qualify for the loans that banks generally offer, at least at rates that anyone could afford. And so we're going to talk today with my friend Frank Crump. Frank and I went to the same college, just uh, so you know, uh, although we were there at different times. But we reconnected when I found out Frank was doing this work to help people who are poor but still need loans. And Frank has created an organization UPI Financial. UPI Loan Fund. And what Frank is doing is remarkable, I think. And he's he's establishing a community development financial institution through this entity. And I want to talk with him about what he's doing. Frank, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you. Art. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Well, Frank, let's get into this because you know the, the extent of the problem probably much better than I do. And and my awkward explanation of it uh, just a few minutes ago, but I'd like to have you first talk about you and what drove you to, to get into this. But then I want to talk about what it is that you're actually trying to achieve and, and how it's going. So let's talk about you. Talk about me. (laughs) How did you get, what in the world drove you to try to provide loan funds to poor people? Well, you know, actually, uh, Art, that concept and idea started more than 40 years ago. I was, at the time, a young entrepreneur. I've actually been an entrepreneur since I was 20. And myself and two other gentlemen, African-Americans, wanted to start a manufacturing company in Pennsylvania. Uh, We didn't have any money, but we did have the... uh, positive attitude, the assistance, we had the skills, and uh, finding the money was was the key for us uh, to get get our dream started and off and running. So I put together a business plan back then, and we went shopping around, believe me, literally going door to door to people, trying to see what we could do to raise money, and ultimately we found a gentleman that said he would support us and back us. At that time, I was actually uh, working for a company called Hamilton Watch out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I was on a business trip out in California. During that time, I'm out laying on the beach in Santa Monica with a yellow tablet. And when I went back, when I get when I was going to get back in Lancaster, I knew that we were going to meet with the gentleman that's going to give us the money to start our manufacturing company. So you can imagine how excited I was about that. But as I laid on the beach with that idea and concept and thought and, and happenings uh, in mind, it dawned on me how many other people are out there like us that had the desire, the skills, the will, but lacked the money. And at that time, this was again 40 some odd years ago, at that time, I, with that yellow tablet, came up with the idea of I wanted to help our people, African Americans, those who were marginalized. And, and certainly we were, we were going through the idea and the concept 
not being able to find the, the monies until we ran upon this gentleman who happened to be Caucasian and decided to help us. So with that yellow tablet, the concept that came to my mind was maybe I could bring together the top black athletes and entertainers under one roof as investors and also bring in about five Fortune 500 companies as investors. And then we would take those invested dollars from those two groups and, in fact, use them to invest in the small and minority businesses and then give those businesses the skills, the talents, the things that they would need to become successful and help them. Uh, obviously, the end result that we were looking, I would be looking to would be to take them public and in as much develop an economic base amongst the American population in this country. So that is where it began in terms of a, a fruitful, concrete concept and idea. The, the germination of what my parents put into me in terms of thoughts about my mother used to say, you have to help people. She herself was a, a licensed practical nurse. And I was going to be a doctor. That's why I went to Franklin and Marshall. I was a pre-med student at FNM. So the idea of helping people has always been something that's been near and dear to me as well. So we literally took the concept and the idea. I went back to Pennsylvania. We get the money to start our manufacturing company. That company ultimately, at a time when manufacturing, black manufacturing, minority manufacturing in the U.S. at that time, was less than one-tenth of one percent of all manufacturing. Less than one-tenth of one percent. We, in spite of that, went on to become one of the top 100 black businesses in Black Enterprise magazine. So we were doing very well. I was president and chairman of the company. I had told my partners I was going to stay in that position long enough to bring in the sales and the backlog and orders. And then once I did that to a sufficient degree, I was going to start what I called then UPI, which then 40 some odd years ago, UPI stood for United Progress Incorporated. I wanted us to be united for the purpose of progress, and we were going to be incorporated doing it as a, a full-fledged for-profit business. I left at a certain point in time. I resigned uh, from my position with the company. I started UPI. We literally went, began to talk to athletes and entertainers about pulling this thing together and came within inches of making it happen. I won't go through all the details, but came literally within inches of pulling the whole thing off. And I say to people today, can you imagine where African-American people could be today if we had pulled that off 40 some odd years ago? So when it didn't happen, I went to the gentleman that gave us the money to start our manufacturing company. He had an international corporation in the defense and aerospace business at the time. And he also became the first investor in UPI at that time. And when it didn't happen, he said, well, Frank, what do you want to do? I said, I want to join your company and travel around the world. And maybe I'll meet people of like mind that I can do business with. He said, okay. So I joined this company. Took about a month or so to find the right spot. But as soon as we did, I was off to Italy, where he had just bought three companies, uh, one in Florence, one in Rome, and one in Milan. And I served as a liaison between the Italian companies and the international marketing team, getting our brochures and data out to the team so they could start marketing the products of these three new companies. I did that for about a year. I traveled around the world, everywhere but South America. 
And after a year of that, I went back to the gentleman and I said, this isn't getting it. He said, what do you mean? I said, three days in France, uh, two days in Finland. I'm meeting people, but I'm not there long enough to establish any relationships. So he said, so what do you want to do? I said, I need to go live in country. He said, where do you want to live? I said, I'll go live in Rome. Because that year alone, I made about 12 trips to Italy alone. And my Italian wasn't bad. I could get along. I had friends there. Meanwhile, I had to go out to Asia and make some presentations in Asia. So I get in Singapore where we had a new vice president. And he takes me to Indonesia and then to Malaysia. And after my second presentation, he says, Frank, why don't you come here and work with me instead of going to Italy? And I looked around. I said, warm weather, good food, and pretty women. You got a hat that I think that, that, that you think I can wear. I will take it. So I thought I would move to Singapore and be there maybe three to five years. Little did I know, I ended up living in Asia more than 20 years. Traveled the world, stayed with the, my mentor's company for a number of years. And then when I got out of there, I left Singapore with his business, his company. His company that I joined had 2,000, 2,700 employees. But when I moved to Asia, he merged his company with a British company. And we now had 50 different operating companies and 27,000 employees. And I was one of the only people of color that was in the management, senior management level. So I got promoted and sent to Bangkok, Thailand, where I handled Thailand, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. And it was a wine and dine job. I was meeting with presidents of countries, playing golf uh, with the generals and the colonels and the admirals. We were in the defense and aerospace business. And I loved what I was doing. The whole concept in terms of business and entrepreneurship has always been strong in my heart and mind. And so when I left that company, I went back to Singapore. I married a Singapore woman. We, in fact, had two children that were born in Singapore. But prior to their birth, I started as an entrepreneur. I started a business in the cosmetic industry as a distributor with Flory Roberts Cosmetics. I also started my own company in the telecoms industry, providing out, doing outsourcing, providing engineers to companies like Lucent Technologies, Motorola, Ericsson, and the like. And then I also had a company I started in the sports side, since basketball was, as with you and I both, was a passion of ours, started a business there. But to get back closely, closer to your, your point with where we are today, I say everything that I've mentioned thus far, only to say that I have gone full circle. When I left to go live in Singapore, I had said I was never coming back to America. And my reason was I had said I refused to live as a second-class citizen. I had been up to other parts around the world. I didn't feel the way that I felt being black in America. I didn't feel the societal issues and problems that we have, that which even persist to this day. And those were the things I was trying to change 40-some-odd years ago with the idea of UPI. I get in Singapore and in Asia. I'm there, as I say, it ended up being there more than 20 years. But the, the desire to help our people, the desire to help all people in this country, and the desire to give back has never left me. So in 2003, I came back to the U.S., when I worked with Jim Brown, 
the former football great with the Cleveland Browns. Jim, in fact, had started a program called AmeriCan. And he and I literally sat at his dining room table before I left to go live in Singapore. And we signed an agreement. You know, I was going to be, I told him I'd be back in three to five years. <laughs> and we signed an agreement that when I come back, we would work together to do something to help people in this country. He went on to start AmeriCam. And each year he'd say, Frank, come on back. You know, we could use you. We need you. But we'd be starting, as I say, other businesses overseas. Uh, it was impossible to do so until the telecoms industry took a nosedive. And when that happened, I called Jim and said, if there's ever a time I can come back and help you, it's now. I came back. I became the number two guy in the AmeriCam program. And that work was phenomenal. Jim's curriculum was outstanding. And I said, Frank, Jim, your, your curriculum should be in, in every school in this country with the information that you're imparting upon people. And we were dealing primarily, though, with the gangs in L.A. and going into the prisons. And after 11 months of my doing that, and being in the prison, sitting next to the warden, watching the graduations, and then hearing these grown men, black, white, Latino, who basically didn't like each other at the start of the class, and now they're hugging each other and kissing each other, manly, if you will. And that really got to my heart. And I said to Jim, you know, we need to be proactive. We need to catch people before they become gang members, before they get locked up. And uh, Jim agreed with that. But he said, there's always going to be a need on the other side of the fence. So he agreed to stay where he was. I left and I started UPI, took the same UPI from 40 years, well, now 40 years, but took the same UPI and started what I called uh, Unified Progress International Education. And I made that a 501c3 nonprofit. And we developed our own curriculum and began to teach kids, in fact, I took, they say, if you have something good, take it back home. And so I brought, brought the curriculum back to New Haven, Connecticut, hot off the press, brought it to my old high school and to our crosstown rifle. And I thought in time that the curriculum certainly should be taught as an accredited class. And that was my goal. But I figured that it would take two to three years before the schools realized that. Unbeknownst to me, both principals independently said, after reading the curriculum, Frank, this is exactly what we need. This is in New Haven, Connecticut. And they wanted it to be taught as an accredited class. So my curriculum came out as an accredited class out of the starting gate in the schools in New Haven, Connecticut. I knew then, and the UPI, as I say, I kept in honor of all that we had done with the UPI years prior. And now with the curriculum, we ran that. I've been doing that for 20 years. We have been taught as after school program. We've taught it as uh, summer camps, and, uh, certainly during school where it was taught as an accredited class. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> I know. I'm, I, 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 I vote too much. <laughs> well, you, you've obviously you, you've had the good fortune of living a full and rich life, my friend. And, and so you, I can see that you didn't waste any time dilly-dallying. You got things done. You were active throughout your life. And it is interesting. I mean, there there's so many parts of your story that connect to my life in different ways. You mentioned Jim Brown. And I remember at the time I was 
the president of OIC of America. And we were doing a lot of job training too. But after the Rodney King incident and the civil unrest, which they called it at the time in Los Angeles, we were asked to see if we could get a program going in Los Angeles. And Chevron was a big supporter. And through them, we were able to get an OIC going in, in South Central LA. But one of the things I'll never forget in getting that program started was Jim Brown. And Jim Brown convened a meeting at his home. And there were gang members from the Crips, from the Bloods. There were FBI agents. <laughs> there were people from the LAPD. There was, and Leon Sullivan was there as well. Uh, if you can imagine that. And all these people were together in Jim Brown's home talking about what we could all do to improve the situation, to change lives, to get people beyond um, the gangs. And I know a lot of the, a lot of the folk there had decided that they were done with it, but they didn't know how to get out. And so Jim was brokering through these various gangs, ways for them to move beyond the gang. It was just a remarkable situation that I'll never forget in my life. So it was just great fortune that you, you were able to uh, work with Jim and to extend that work into your own nonprofit now trying to help folk. But I want to talk, if you don't mind, about what you're trying to do with these loans, because I think that we still see in this country discrimination, systemic discrimination, I should add, when it comes to financial institutions. Because if you look at how people are rated to get loans, uh, some of that is pure, it's just pure systemic racism. There's no way that a similar home in a majority black community should be worth less than a home in a white community if it's the same house. But every single time you see them valued lower. And as a result, people aren't able to borrow what they should be able to borrow to, to either fix up their homes or to refinance their homes in some cases. And their rates remain higher. And, and so we, we continue to see this. Uh, payday loans. If we were to look at payday loans, I'm sure you would find that a disproportionate amount of people who receive those loans are from African-American and poor communities. And so we, we have to agree in this country that the structures that keep people down need to be changed. And I think you are on to something with this community development financial institution concept. So I want you to talk more about what you want to do with it and, and the kind of success maybe that you've seen so far with it. In 2020, I had been introduced by a Jewish gentleman here in the Phoenix area to the Jewish Free Loan, uh, which is an organization that had been around for more than 70 years. Jewish Free Loan is actually a national in scope and international. And many years ago, some Jewish gentlemen 
as I'm told, put some money into a pot and said, this money is for any Jewish person that has financial difficulty. And when I met with the executive director of the Jewish Free Loan in Phoenix, she asked me if I would like to set something like that up for African-Americans. And I said, certainly, most definitely. But in my mind at that very moment, I didn't want to just do it for African-Americans. With my having traveled around the world and living outside of the U.S. for more than 20 years and coming back every year, of course, but I had a different view of America and a different view in terms of the way it was before I left and the way I see it and saw it at that time and today. And the view I have today is it doesn't matter if you're black, blue, brown, green, or yellow in America today. Our society takes and will step on you any way it can. You just mentioned these payday loans. Yes, the payday loans, the title loans are primarily in the areas of people of color. And yes, they prey on them. You mentioned 20 to 30 percent interest rates, but no, it's much higher than that. It can be as much as 300 to 400 percent interest in fees. Wow. Yes. And in some states, this is legal. How do you like that? Now, in Arizona, uh, they, they did away with payday loans, supposedly. They still have title loans here in Arizona. But I could get on the phone right now or on my computer and get a payday loan sitting right in my home here in Arizona. So it's a a very bad situation that we allow to exist. So she asked me if I wanted to do something. And I said, she asked if I wanted to do it for African-Americans. I said, yes. But in my mind, it was to do it for all people in this country and to begin to see if we could change the system, if you will, to make it a more conducive system to our people. We in this country, do our, our governments, our politicians, in many instances, They are there for themselves. They're in their positions, but they're not taking care of the people that put them in those positions. And that's critical to where we must begin to make change because we can be better. We can be a lot better. So in 2020, we created UPI Loan Fund. And again, this UPI has been carried along with me for, again, 40 plus years. But the UPI Loan Fund was established to provide affordable, low-cost loan products that focus on the needs of the unbanked, the underbanked, low-moderate income communities and families, providing an alternative to the uh, predatory lenders, such as, you say, the payday and the title loans. And we are the first Black-led community development loan fund in the state of Arizona. And as you mentioned, the CDFI, we're an emerging CDFI which is a community development financial institution. And we expect that we will have that status within the next six to nine months is our plan. We have created a unique digital platform to originate loans for borrowers across the country. So as a community development loan fund, we've already begun to expand. We have partnered with an organization in both Waterbury, Connecticut and Houston, Texas, we're about to do some stuff in Canton, Ohio, by way of Ray Ellis, a former uh, football great with the Cleveland Browns and the, the Philadelphia Eagles, who's been very supportive of our work. In fact, in a matter of weeks, he raised over, helped to raise over $100,000 for us to use as loan money to get into the communities to help people in need. So that's where we are in terms of uh, the loan fund. But Frank, how does, how does it work? So are you working with other financial institutions to 
fund the bank or are you getting loans or grants or money from other people to make these loans? Where where do your resources come from to actually make these loans? To be honest, to get this thing started, I had spoken with the uh, president and CEO of the Marisol Federal Credit Union, and that's Robin Romano. And I shared with her the idea of what we wanted to do and become with the UPI Loan Fund, so much to the point that I convinced her as a start to give us $200,000 of her money for us to lend out. Now, that's, that's humongous. We wouldn't be where we are today without Robin's uh, consideration and, and generosity. But after doing that and getting the ball rolling, we then were in a position to begin to raise money. So monies for us can come from donations from the public, uh, also grants from corporations and foundations. And we also did some loans with some corporations. So they gave us low cost money, 1%, 2%, which then we could put out at 9% to the public in comparison to 300 and 400% that would be an alternative that they had to go to the payday loans or the predatory lenders there. So our funding is as such. As a CDFI, which is a community development financial institution, which I say we hope to be in the, in the coming months, that's under the auspices of the U.S. Treasury Department. And they, in fact, provide low-cost monies as well to the CDFIs. There's approximately 1,300 or so CDFIs in the country at present. You mentioned a gentleman that's starting one for a specific area, and, mm-hmm. and many of them do focus on specific areas. Our area is to present at least 60% of our funding to go to African Americans. The other 40% can be divided upon, um, amongst anyone, black, white, Latino. It doesn't matter. We're here to help everyone that we possibly can. Wonderful. So, Frank, when I think about people who are in the situation who need the loans, a lot of them have financially precarious lives, right? I mean, there's situations, maybe they're unemployed for a period of time. How do you go about, I'll use the word, underwriting these loans? I mean, what is it that you look for before you're able to make a loan? What has to happen? What type of repayment terms and so forth? And are you seeing any defaults? You know, are you seeing defaults and how do you manage that? The best way to answer that is to, to give a, some comparisons, if you will. Banks, I would say, are very conservative in determining who they're going to make a loan to. Uh, they want to look at your credit report, your net worth, your income to debt ratio, the purpose of the loan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in many cases, banks are not in the neighborhoods that we're looking to help and support. They stay, they've taken and closed down their banks in many neighborhoods as such because it's just not, in their mind, feasibly, financially uh, you know, feasible for them. The next thing that we have is credit unions. And I would say that credit unions are not very conservative, but they are conservative uh, for the most part. They, too, will have their restrictions in terms of what they must look at in terms of the nature before they can make a loan. They have guidelines, certain guidelines that they have to abide by. So although they are flexible, more flexible than the bank, they're still not as flexible as, let's say, what we are, a community development loan fund. And in our case, as well as with the community development financial institution, 
there's greater latitude. But from our special particular point of view as a UPI loan fund, what we look at, well, we like to say it this way. We're more concerned with your character than your credit. We do look at a credit report. And that credit report will tell us if you're paying your bills or not. There are a lot of people out here that don't have high scores if you look at their credit rating. All right. But they pay their bills. So that's far more important in terms of where we stand and look at an individual as compared to you have to have a six, seven hundred uh, credit score before we're going to give you some money. The other things that we do is we look at the circumstances. We look at and we, we interview everyone that we talk to uh, that's interested and that applies for a loan. And they can apply for a loan with us online. But nonetheless, we're going to interview them, find out what they want the money for. Do they have a job or a source of income to pay us back? We're not here to just give away money. We can't. I'd love to be able to do that if I had a magic wand and could just make it. But we don't. We have to be prudent as well. But we're not going to be as prudent as some would be. So we want to make sure they're able to pay us back. We want to make sure that their character is good. We question what, how and what they need the monies for. If, in fact, they need the money to pay off maybe a, a payday loan or a title loan that they already have, we'll, we'll write the check to pay that off. We're not going to put the cash in their hands. And as far as default rates go, we've been operating, as I say, since uh, 2020. And we've had one loan that has defaulted on us. Wow. Really? One loan. Yeah. So we're very helpful. We're very positive. And we think that we're doing a good thing in the community. We know we're doing a good thing in the community. Our thing now, Art, is to get others to support us. We've already been told when we become a CDFI, many banks have already told us and, and Fortune 500 companies have told us, when you become a CDFI, we can truly help you. And that's where they have CRA dollars that they put into the communities, banks included. So we're, we're looking forward to that time and day. But nonetheless, we still need those donors that are out there that have a heartfelt desire to, as we are trying to do, create change uh, for the better to participate and partner with us as well. You may find it helpful. A lot of charities do, I'll say, to just go through our accreditation process with the Wise Giving Alliance, BBB Wise Giving Alliance. We accredit charities and, and that seems to make a difference for people who are donating when they see that the organization has been accredited. So I would encourage you to go through that process um, as you continue to build the organization, particularly if you're going to be going after donations from, from individuals. Most definitely. Most definitely. Frank, I'm, I'm highly uh, impressed by what you've done and what you're doing. You're at a point in your life where you've accomplished so much and yet you still believe that, there's more for you to do, not necessarily for you, but for other people. And I get astounded by that. I get astounded by people who could be playing golf every day or who could be maybe playing with their grandchildren or just enjoying the remainder of their lives. But yet there's something that drives them to want to contribute more to society. Maybe it's because they got so much from it. Maybe it's because they had particular problems 
that they needed to overcome and someone helped them and now they want to give it back. In your case, what is it, Frank? What is it for you that makes you want to do this at this point in your life? And I'm asking you this question because I would gather that there are other people out there who are, let's say, in the fourth quarter of their lives who are trying to figure out what they do, what they should be doing next. And it seems to me that you have found something that not only brings you fulfillment, but also can help a significant number of people who don't have anywhere to turn when it comes to these loans. So I want to hear that part because I want them to listen and see if they could be inspired to do something as well. Well, you know what? I'm, I am 71 years old now. Hard for me to even believe. <laughs> but this whole thing started when I was about 27 or 28, back with the UPI, as I said, with the athletes and the entertainers. How and why? I think it's a godsend type of thing. I think that when I was at Franklin and Marshall as a pre-med student, I had finished my pre-med in, in three years instead of the normal four. And I also went to school in India where they did an independent study on Ayurvedic medicine, an ancient Hindu type medicine. I think going to India and seeing the poverty that I saw there and then coming back home here to the States and seeing the wealth that we have here and all the good things that we have here. But nonetheless, we have people that are still living in poverty in this country. We're also a country that had most of its pe more people locked up in its jails than any other country in the world. I saw the inequities. And either when you see something that's, that's not right, you either do something about it or you sit on the fence and just watch it or you turn your head and go the other way. I'm not turning my head and going the other way and I'm not going to sit on the fence. And if I see something that's not right, then I have, I have an obligation to myself and to the people of the planet to do something to make a difference and make a positive change. And that's been my motivating factor. And as I say, this, the idea that this whole thing has, has gone full circle, including my living and traveling around the world. And I come back and I'm, I'm here and, and it's happening now, Art. you know, what we tried to do 40 some odd years ago is literally happening now. And that's very fulfilling and rewarding as well. Well, you know, listen, sometimes it just the timing has to be right for things to happen. Things have to ripen into their season. And this has ripened into a season for you. And it's, again, so great that you kept this idea close to you throughout your career. And now you're able to uh, to make it a reality. Well, look, Frank, we could go on for a while. Uh, unfortunately, we we have to end the podcast now. But I just want to thank you for for doing this and for doing the work that you're doing, really. I mean, I think it's so critical that people who have accomplished things in their lives find time and energy and ideas that they can contribute to society. And you are a shining example of someone who's doing that. And it's great to hold you up. And let me just say to all of our listeners, I really appreciate the attention that you've given us in this podcast. And I hope that what you've heard today and what you've heard through some of our other episodes, all, all 70, some of them you can hear by going to any major podcast platform. 
I hope that maybe they've inspired you to do a little bit more than you might otherwise do to support your communities and to contribute in some way to to the world and to people and, and causes. If you know of people who might be good candidates for a conversation, please let us know. You can reach out to me by finding me on LinkedIn or or on Facebook or any of the social media platforms. And you can also email me at ataylor at give.org. I'm always looking for great stories that will inspire and educate us to do more for our communities than we might otherwise do without that. And if you want to support the podcast, you can do that by going to give.org and making a contribution. We would certainly appreciate that. The podcast is actually part of a nonprofit organization called give.org. And your contributions would certainly matter if you were able to support us that way. Let me say to you again, if you want to hear us next week, we'll be back with another episode and you can find all the previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.